0: I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... I do think that there are people representing us in Congress now that truly don't understand economics. But here's the reality. Year after year, Congress approves budgets. And year after year, Congress has been approving budgets with significant deficits.
1: Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Our guest today is Jonathan Aberman. He's the dean at the business school at Marymount University, also a locally well-known venture capital attorney and merger and acquisition lawyer. So we decided to talk about a couple of things that are kind of important, like a bank crisis that Silicon Valley Bank is sort of front and center on and how that might play out. There's some lots of guarantees the government's doing, but also the debt ceiling. Is that a political tool or is it actually happening? How do we deal with that? So these are kind of big meta things going on. Bank crisis, debt ceiling, that and some other small talk. But it's very important to hear Jonathan's perspective because he's a trained economist, a trained banker, and a trained lawyer. So he tells you kind of the inside story. Here's our conversation.
0: Jonathan, welcome again. It's always great to be here. And it's nothing like a little bank crisis
1: to get us together, huh? What is your sense of how Silicon Valley Bank got into
0: trouble? Well, Silicon Valley— And and feel free to stop and go all the way back to what does a bank do? Oh, okay. Well, first, there was Adam and Eve. (laughs) (laughs) They created a bank. They they created a bank, and then they got overdrawn. No, seriously, I I think that in order to have a conversation about Silicon Valley Bank and the system, we we really need to do a level set on what a bank is. So banks collect deposits. They take money from people, and they give them interest— For holding the deposit. Admittedly, right now, not much interest, but they give people interest, which is the rental on their money. Banks then take that money and they, in turn, lend it out to businesses that need capital. That's what banks do. And they make their money on the difference between the interest that they charge to lend money out and the interest that they pay depositors. That works great, right? It's a very simple business model. Take money from depositors, you hand it out to businesses. Most people understand that. And respect it and because we all do banks. What people don't necessarily understand is that the way banks work is they never have on hand all the cash that they've taken from depositors. Far from it. Far from it. In fact, the Federal Reserve Board and the control of currency have very specific guidelines for how much cash or near cash a bank has to have on hand. And it's much, much less than the amount of money that banks have lent out. So banks basically are in the business of taking deposits and doing... T- basically one thing, which is turn it into an asset. That asset can be a loan, or in the case of many banks, that asset can be buying government security like treasury bonds, or it can be lending money overnight to other banks in what's called the repurchase market. And so what happens is when a bank is perceived by its depositors as not having enough assets to pay everybody back, because people believe that the amount of assets, the value of the assets is less, the amount of deposits, depositors likely say, wait a minute, I need to go get in first in line so I get my money back. That is what's called a, a, that's what a banking crisis is. It is a panic in the truest sense of the word. It's, I need to get my money back first because there's not going to be enough money back for, for everybody.
1: So, so those who have seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, that's a legendary story of what they call a bank run. Yes. Where the residents of, what was not like, Funsville or whatever the hell the town he was in yeah. in the movie, um, all went to the bank and asked for their money. And mm-hmm. the bank said, I can't do it. And, and, and then panic ensues, and obviously the guy tries to, Jimmy Stewart's character, suicide the whole thing. Right. Uh, an incredible mov- movie, but it did... Correctly, And then Mr. Potter, the bad guy, had to step in and try and c- calm all that. But that idea of a run in the bank, as odd as it seems that a movie from the 30s would actually show exactly what you just said, that is sort of what's
0: going on now. Well, the reality is, is that what I just described, the so-called run in the bank, has existed for as long as there have been banks, which has only been a, about a couple thousand years. I yeah. mean, there was banking in the Roman Empire. There was banking throughout Western Europe and Medieval times onward, Renaissance was built on the back of banking. Uh, I could go on and on. This phenomenon of putting money into somebody's pocket so that they can give you interest back and use the money for something else is not a new phenomenon. Yeah, The, the idea of a bank run is not a new phenomenon either. But what happened to the American psyche is this, the image of the bank run, which your movie, It's Wonderful Life, really encapsulates, was the 1929 stock market crash and the aftermath was exactly that. What happened in 1929 was a stock market crash, but it would have been a lot like what happened in 2001 here in the United States. It's a crash, and, and then people go back and buy stock again. It's fine. The reason why it became a problem was the banking system had lent enormous amounts of money to Europe, to Germany in particular for the reparations under the Versailles Treaty. And when Germany had its hyperinflation, everybody said, wait a minute, the assets the banks lend out are worth less then we think we need to get to the bank, and banks suddenly had bank runs, which caused other banks to have bank runs, and the system collapsed.
1: Well, that, so there you go, and that's where I was hoping to get us, is one event can cause concern on many, and and I would argue, please feel free to conflict and, and educate, that SVB is a symbol to other people that the system is unsteady. SVB, though, I think, is a unique kind of bank. You and I have talked about this off air, where the collateral they got for the loans that they lent out, as opposed to the car loan from, you know, First National Bank of uh, of, mm-hmm. of, of of Omaha, right? That, that's collateral. They can they can repossess the car. If they give a, a home loan, they can or they can own the house and, and get rid of the asset. SVB was taking as collateral things that were not very collateralized.
0: Well, what? So let's unpack this because what you find. By the way, in the middle of just about every financial crisis, if you go back in history, and we can just go back to 2008, if we want.
1: Wait, there was a crisis in 2008. There was. I, I, I don't recall that.
0: I was heavily uh, yeah. Sedated. Well, I think at the time you and I were doing forward-thinking radio, maybe, and we were just not paying attention. <laughs> I but I the hear there was a crisis. Anyway, uh, my, my point is to say that every financial crisis has in the middle of it generally a financial institution or a financial investor that has certain core attributes. The attributes are heavy concentration in a particular type of the market, whether it's Lehman or AIG or it's long-term capital management, which touched off another crisis. Bear Stearns. Right, Bear Stearns or Citibank, their third world lending. Whenever there is a concentration of a particular type of credit in a particular part of the financial system and an event happens which causes that credit to be seen as less valuable, that will undermine the bank. Right. So, what you're describing in Silicon Valley is a bank is a bank that was heavily concentrated in early stage and late stage venture capital backed companies around the world. So that we are going through a period right now of a tremendous change in the overall valuation of venture capital businesses. Because Correct. and what is happening, it's like a train it's like a really train derailment. Yeah. What we're seeing is that the companies that are furthest along and closest to public markets, their values are declining. Because a cash flow negative business that nobody necessarily wants to buy is pretty scary if it's worth a billion or two, three billion dollars. And that's compressing valuations there, which is compressing valuations for companies that were hoping to go public. And it's compressing valuations to companies that are two and three years away. It's a slow motion or not so slow motion train derailment. Yeah, And Silicon Valley is in the middle of it, holding deposits in these companies and collateral interest in intellectual property. And also warrants and equity interest because part of their business model was to take some equity. So
1: warrants is another word for their ability to purchase stock in the company That's at a, right. a prearranged price.
0: Right. That's something that I think we need to really point out is that Silicon Valley Bank was a hybrid entity where they didn't just provide loans to a particular part of the economy. They actually became part owners. Yeah. And And that was a terrific business model for Silicon Valley Bank when the market was going up. Yeah. Because not only did they get their their loans repaid, which had, you know, market rate or close to market rate interest, but they also, for the companies that won and went public, they also got upside yeah. by owning it. So, as is often the case, same thing with Lehman or with Bear Stearns. When the mortgage business was at its height, there was so much money to be made. And I remember the former CEO of Citibank said at some point right around the crisis, you know, I was going to be the CEO to basically say I'm walking away from the party before it's over. He said he was or was, was, was not going to be the one, yeah, right? Yeah. Look, the financial Music market, was stopping. Well, yeah. The music was stopping. We need to appreciate that a capitalist system is going to have at its core a financial industry that is going to be prone to booms and busts. It's the nature of things. The challenge is whether or not people are willing to accept living in a regulated capitalist economy. And right. what we've seen over the last week is that there's been a lot of posturing. I mean, it makes me sick to have somebody, a politician like Ronda Santos say, Silicon Valley Bank went out of business because of DEI. Yeah. It's completely irrelevant. It's a financial. They were in business. Literally completely wrong. But it's also, I think, really bad for a politician to say, well, you know, we shouldn't bail out yeah. the depositors. The, the reality is, is that if we want to live in a system that's going to be stable enough for us to live in we need to accept or be willing to accept a regulated market economy yes okay and and so what the fed and the feds did this week by guaranteeing deposits was a perfect example of where the biden administration and regulators said you know what we'd rather live in a regulated economy than something that's completely free market so the so regulation
1: and i think it's important once again we're talking with jonathan aberman he's our guest on what's working in washington Jonathan is a venture lawyer and an M and A guy in the in the marketplace, but also the dean of the program for business innovation, leadership, and technology. Technology at Marymount at, University at Marymount University yes. here in the Washington D.C. area. Uh, this idea of regulation. So to your point on on the on the uh, the crash of the late twenties. That started the Securities and Exchange Commission. Before that, we didn't have an ACC. Right. I think we did we created the FDIC, federal That's deposit. That's right, the insurance federal deposit, Exactly,
0: because Jimmy Stewart changed people's behavior. Exa- exactly. <laughs> well, it was the idea that if, if people were depositors and uh, and they didn't have to worry about the bank being able to pay them off if for some reason that particular bank's assets were not valued the same. They wouldn't cause a bank panic,
1: and that's why when you walk into your local branch of the Bank of Omaha, it has an FDIC sticker right that's next right. to the front door, which says up to fifty thousand dollars of your personal of lo- your personal account will be, will be insured and protected if this thing goes belly up. Right, and two, I think two fifty for a business, right? I think well, that's it, two, the it
0: doesn't matter who holds the account; it's two hundred fifty thousand oh, okay. dollars. Now, now here's the the point that I really want to hammer home. Now that we've level set. There's something very important happening right now in our overall philosophy on how we want to regulate capitalism. And it looks like this. Back in 2008, that crisis that you and I tried to ignore because we were on the radio a lot and we didn't ignore, was touched off by a concentration of assets, mortgage-backed securities, in a particular part of the banking system, Lehman, Bear Stearns, and others. That was guaranteed, in effect, by AIG – insurance company It was providing insurance by insuring AAA credit rating for all these bonds. AAA. So what happened- Guaranteed, was, baby, right. A. So, so what happened was uh, when Lehman went bankrupt and all its underlying assets became valueless or perceived as valueless, that touched off a bank run. But what's was fascinating was it didn't touch off a bank run with consumers. Yeah. It touched off a bank run with other banks. Yes. Because they all looked at each other and said, wait a minute, we've all got mortgage-backed securities. How do I know that you're still- solve elephants stop trusting elephants elephants <laughs> stop trying and literally in the space of two to three days the entire financial market ground to a complete halt where i, Other I than that, though. no but seriously <laughs> right. but but the the Federal Reserve and the Department of Treasury and the the Bush administration a Republican administration looked at it and said we have a bank run that is of epic size meta yeah. meta individual depositors are protected by the 250. This is not their problem, but yet the system's going to destroy us unless we guarantee everything. So they took all the mortgage-backed securities off the balance sheet of the banks. They guaranteed interbank loans. They did amazing things, okay? So they took all the risk out of interbanking. Now we've got Silicon Valley Bank. Yep. Individual depositors, we've got to protect them no matter how much you have. Now we are given an unlimited guarantee to pay off depositors. So the real question is, for those of us who are thinking about this, what does it mean for our economy going forward if literally we take all the risk out of finance?
1: That's the question for the ages. It's What's Working in Washington. Our guest is Jonathan Aberman. Aberman, sorry about that. We're going to be back to talk about the question he just posed and also this whole debt ceiling thing. Remember that? Big deal. As our conversation continues. want to put out a huge thank you to our listeners who put us in touch with some of the best voices in Washington, D.C. and the region. We've been hearing from you through Twitter, LinkedIn and other direct messaging. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. And thanks to all of those who stay in touch with us. Really happy to be joined by Jonathan Aberman. Jonathan is the dean of the business school at Marymount University here in Washington, D.C., also an experienced venture merger and acquisition and venture capital lawyer, so he knows wherever he speaks when it comes to finance. We're talking about the Silicon Valley Bank uh, challenge and the banking crisis that is— I shouldn't say crisis. The the banking situation that seems to be resolved by our government. Before we get to your provocative last comment about taking risk out of the banking business, Mm -hmm. let me recommend to our listeners— a movie called Margin Call, M-A-R-G-I-N. Oh, it's terrific, absolutely. Call, two words. It's, I mean, it's sort of a, co- in my opinion, it's a combination of Lehman Brothers, what's the other, uh, uh, Kenner Fitzgerald. Kenner Fitzgerald. It's about the, the the crash of 2008 and what it would have been like to have been at a bank that did everything to save itself when the world literally stopped around them. And even if you're not a banker, even if you've never worked in an investment bank, even if you never went to business school, it's entertaining to see the personal
0: dynamics and that's where I want to go well it's the personal per- dynamics of getting out early well it's a perfect example of how individuals can make decisions that are in their own justifiable self-interest which yep. is what capitalism is predicated on yep. which aggregated together cause everybody to suffer yes and well then said. that and that is frankly that is the biggest flaw in uh, any collective economic structure whether it's communism socialism or capitalism is that what's often good for the individual, in their individual self-interest, won't always be good for society as a whole. And it's that balancing. Okay, so Peter Thiel, yeah. the legendary— uh, Free market guy. Free market guy
1: who was—he shouldn't say accused. He's being named as the first guy out of SVB, called him up and got took all his money out and told all the companies he's invested in right. to get their money out.
0: Did he start this, in your opinion? No, I don't think that any—well, uh, number one— Uh, There were other banks, there were other VC firms, by what I've read, and again, I don't know, had been recommending that their portfolio companies take money out of SVB for a number of months. Okay, That's number one. Number two, um, there rarely is one individual that can really be patient zero for a bank run. Okay. Right? Because at the end of the day, again, people make individual decisions. You know, I could wake up and say, I, I unless I own so much right. of have such a large number that my single decision tips out a bank, but banks are so large now with Silicon Valley Bank had hundreds of billions of dollars of assets. Yeah. So even a, a depositor taking a billion or two billion dollars out overnight in itself would not undermine the solvency of the bank. So But it is the pebble well, what I would say Atlantis, right? is that – and this is what I was getting at with concentration of assets in a particular industry. Yeah, You and I both spend a lot of time, when we're not together on the air, engaged in working in the venture capital startup community. Yeah. And it is a closed ecosystem with you know who you're working with, you know the banks, you know the lawyers and so forth. It's very self-referential, and that's one of the reasons it works so well because there's a high level of trust. So you can get complex things done – really fast. Yeah. So Silicon Valley Bank's in the middle of this ecosystem, and all it would take was a little bit of concern, you know, repeated at Bucks, which is, you know, the place everybody right. goes to have breakfast. Peach. And yeah, peace. Yeah, yeah. it was, right. f- was but anyway, well, whatever. I haven't been the valley in a while. They right. they when I became a dean, they they took away my visa. There you go. But anyway, uh bottom line is it doesn't take much for people to say, hey, there's something going on and it becomes a self fulfilling That's the nature of a bank run, or right. what we'll call it a, a credit run. Whisper so,
1: campaign, exactly right. Now,
0: now, if you want to say, from a from a Sean and Fried perspective, you know, here we got a bunch of people in the venture industry that are always talking about free markets. Yeah. Right? And, and now we've got, over the weekend, when Silicon Valley Bank is in the balance and may not be able to give people access to deposits, so companies aren't going to be able to make payroll, all of a sudden, hundreds of VCs, the most prominent VCs, are screaming at the government to basically guarantee deposits. And folks are saying, well, wait a minute. I understand. You're a free market guy, but now you're saying the government needs to intervene. How you does that parse? Mommy. You run to mommy for help. Right. And and so some politicians and commentators want to take a hard line and say, well, you're a hypocrite. I was like, well, number one, if hypocrisy was the, ch- you know, the test, I think there'd be two people in the United States talking right, right. now. I'm not sure who they are. On the hill. Right? Well, maybe. But, yeah. but my point is the to say, that, you know. Don't call it hypocrites, because at the end of the day, what people are saying is, you know what? I, I want to make a lot of money, but do you say, Mommy, I want to live in a regulated capitalist economy. Yeah. I just want to make sure the regulations work for me. And so, that's really what it comes down to. So
1: the gutting of Dodd-Frank, as is now headlining, Yes. in your opinion, is that an important event that happened in 2018? Because Dodd-Frank had some of the protective features you and I have discussed.
0: What Dodd-Frank did, again, Dodd-Frank was a attempt to change the regulatory regime after 2008 yeah. to get large money center banks that were systemically important out of the business of doing risky things. Okay. The idea that uh, the late Paul Volcker uh, had was make banking boring. Yeah. So what they tried to do in Dodd-Frank was make banks more like banks – and frankly, they weren't as successful in legislation as I think they should have been. Is that frankly or Dodley? Uh, it's dodly do and frankly, issues? and in my opinion, I'll get all of them in. Okay, But the, the legislation was not as um, effective as it should have been. However, there was lobbying done by interests, including Silicon Valley Bank, to increase the threshold for the regulation so that it conveniently was at an asset value higher than banks like... Signature, which we're ha- is having trouble because of crypto at the same time, by the way, yeah. or SVB. This is what I mean. It's the tension of regulation. And the sooner we could have an intelligent conversation about that, the more likely you are to have an economy that's worth being so part of. So
1: the chance of having an intelligent conversation on the Hill about stuff like this is probably just after world peace. Don't you think that's going to happen first, world peace?
0: Um, Maybe? That depends. Is, is it, will, will world peace be catered? Fine.
1: but anyway, I Let, we have other we have other topics. Okay, May I, can I move on? You,
0: it, it's your show. I'm Thank just a guest. You. Our guest, by the way, thanks
1: for asking me to remind. Always everybody, happy to reset. Jonathan Aberman is our guest today here on What's Working in Washington. I am Mark Walsh, your host. We're talking about yeah, you guessed it, the financial marketplaces, because that's kind of been top of mind for a lot of people. <laughs> and one of those features is the the debt ceiling. Yes, which in 2012, 20, 2011, 2012 was the last time it became brinksmanship, and now 11 years later, we're at it again. Um, I'll start you you comment. What people tend to forget is the debt ceiling is our ability to continue to grow the level of debt the government has to pay for what we've already agreed to operate. So this is an after the decision point where we have to pay for what our budget, which was a, which is in operation, what was was set in not set in stone, but was agreed upon. so this this argument about how dare you go deeper into debt? Dude, everybody agreed on what it was going to be. And now the ceiling is being, uh, I would argue, used in a political way. What's your sense?
0: I think I used the word hypocrisy earlier in our interview. And it applies again. It's hypocrisy. It's plain and simple. It's hypocrisy. uh, It's posturing. And having said that, I do think that there are people representing us in Congress now that truly don't understand economics. I agree. And and that's a sad fact. But here's the reality. The reality is, as you say— Year after year, Congress approves budgets. And year after year, Congress has been approving budgets with significant deficits, whether it was the Obama administration was doing it largely because they were spending money to overcome the financial crisis of 2008. And by right. the way, nobody forget. everybody seems to forget that the Obama administration deficit spending actually declined every year exactly. instead of going right. up, yeah. but be that as it may. And during the Trump administration, they didn't even release the numbers because the deficit blew up so much because of the tax cuts. Embarrassing. So anyways, we are we are, pox on both houses, fine. The real fundamental issue, and now I'm going to use this and explain this in a way that I want all of you, when you are talking with people and they try to make it really complicated, is very simple. And it goes like this. People are saying, United States, it's like a checkbook. We need to balance our checkbook, and this is the way we're going to balance our checkbook. And you know what? Fine. Let me ask you a question. If your checkbook and your ability to balance your checkbook caused every other checkbook around the world to go into the red... Would you still do it? Yeah. And that's the part that people don't want to understand. The entire world financial system, everything, everything from junk bonds, government bonds, the mafia lending money to somebody because he borrowed, you know, because he bet wrong, mortgage everything, rates in Germany. Everything, everything exists on a single marketplace called the capital markets line. And at the bottom of it, the absolute bottom of it is this risk free asset called US government debt. If the US government debt suddenly becomes insolvent, it becomes unavailable, yeah. becomes not risky. If it suddenly becomes unavailable, which is what the debt ceiling not being raised would do, literally the entire financial system doesn't have a way to adjust. Yeah. And that is the part that blows my mind. Yeah. That is the part that just blows my mind. So when you're talking, you know, and your dinner parties and somebody says, we got to clean up our house, yes. You want to bounce the budget? Pass a budget that's balanced. Yeah. But you're not gonna be able to do it without cutting you know, you can't do it without cutting enti- exactly security. Right. But yeah. whatever. But have it then. But don't don't ever, ever jeopardize because capitalism depends on this this free market yeah, so depends upon this capital market. I, I line. said
1: to someone the other day, this is you know the the old um closing the barn door after the horse is left. It is and then, then shooting the closing, horse. Well it, but it's closing <laughs> the barn door after the horse is left. And the entire world cares about that horse, right? So, so you, you. Oh, you're exactly right. right. And, and and it's like the horse, right? You, yeah. uh, you So I I just find it so distressing. Uh, before we get to our final question with our guest Jonathan Aberman, you and I remember in 2012 we discussed this. Yeah. That um, then then Fed uh, th- then non-Fed chair Jay Powell, who was just working at the Bipartisan Policy Center, went to John Boehner and he briefed the Republican Caucus. Yeah. Who were I would argue holding hostage, and some of them said we should we should bring the system to its knees and go back to the barter system. Mm -hmm. So to your point about some people on the Hill don't understand economics. And I think there actually is some bipartisanship to that. I think there's some democratic legislators and I know there's some Republican legislators who don't understand the financial system to go back to the barter system. You know, let's go live in yurts because that that's where we would go. Listen, we're, well, you got a final point. Oh, that I, I, I just on, want I you to know, question. just to help
0: you uh, think, yeah. uh, if you want to go in with me, I'm hoarding clamshells right now. Very, very important. <laughs> just okay. want you to know that. Yeah,
1: gold. All right. So, uh, as you know, we ask our guests at the end of every edition of What's Working in Washington a simple but pithy question. If you ran the world for some period of time, what would you start happening or what would you stop happening that is currently happening or maybe both?
0: So, what, what say you? I know you're going to be shocked to hear this after the last 20 minutes. Yeah. But I would do. I would do two things related. One, I'd stop with this nonsense of the debt ceiling because the reality is is that every other government in the capitalistic world doesn't have one. So it's just nonsense that we do. But the second and bigger one is I would love to live in a world of world peace, but I actually love (laughs) to live in a world where people actually have conversations about free market economy and the balance of capitalism in an intelligent way. Because for this economy to continue to lead the world, we have to resolve this and stop engaging in meaningless nonsense.
1: Well said, and I completely agree. And for people to blame what's going on with uh, on, on political be- behavior to me is absolutely nauseating. It's What's Working in Washington. Our guest today has been Jonathan Aberman, the dean of the Business School of Marymount University, a locally well-known venture lawyer and M&A expert. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Always good to see you. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.